This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time, and this is a Hack the Craft episode. And this is a Hack the Craft episode where we dig into some material that I've written. If you listened to the show last week, you know that we, we sort of gave an overview of what we're going to be doing today. And of course, today, last week we didn't do video, today we are going to have video. This is going to be a multi-part series. We're not sure how many parts it's going to be. And we'll have the entire thing kind of stitched together on Taylor's Patreon page, which you can get to at Taylor's uh, patreon.com slash Taylor Stevens. But we'll try and keep the podcast themselves to the normal length of around 30 minutes or so. So... We do have, we're, we're going to squeeze in a little bit of chit-chat, even though it's a Hack the Craft episode, because Taylor asked me last week as we were going through this, well, she didn't ask me, as we were going through this, she pointed out that I had not seen the changes yet, and when we got on and started chatting before the show, she asked me a very important question, which was? Did it upset you? <laughs> Did it upset, I wanted to know if it upset him to read what I had sent him back. And what I'd sent him back wasn't just the scene that we're going to work over today. It was the entire first chapter. And the reason I was concerned is because I know that Steve did not half-ass what he sent me. He made it his absolute best. And what I sent back to him was a completely different level of what he sent to me. And I worried that it would be upsetting in the sense that he would see the difference between the two and just oh. <laughs> now, I, now I, I have I to would, tell a secret. I, I would throw up my hands and just be like, ah, because I'd be so mad at myself. That's because, you know, that's how I am. And I, I don't want to do that to somebody else, but I also know that it's on me to give Steve my very best if we're working on this together. So, all right, there's the background. All right. It. So with, with that being said, when I first saw it and I saw just from a very high level, when I saw the amount of things that had been changed, I was a little bit taken aback. And it's like, okay, I can't deal with this right now, so I'm just going to close it, and I'm not going to look at it. And I looked at it on the plane on the way back from New York, and I was reading it. And here's where, um, here's where the funny part is. When Taylor said, did it make you angry? And as I was reading it, I was getting angry because Taylor's was so much better than mine. And there was one scene that there were just some words that were tweaked. And we're not going to get into this. We're not going to get into this scene today. But it was the first scene and there was a little section of dialogue and a character was introduced. And Taylor added just enough. And it just sent chills up and down my spine when I read it. It's like, this is so much better than what I did. And it's just this little bit of thing that's this little bit that's that's different. And that was really kind of cool and kind of exciting for me and took away all the feelings of being a little bit hacked off at this uh, Hack the Craft episode. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, and the thing is, is 
I understand why someone would be irritated because, like I said, I still get stuff back from my editors. I get stuff back from the copy editors. I get stuff back from paper readers. And it's still the same for me. Like, I know I'm good at what I do, but I still have people correcting my stuff and making it better. And and if it's that way for me and I already have the confidence to know that I know what I'm doing, how much more for anybody else? So I know what it feels like. It's not coming like out of a void here. I know what it feels like and it's not fun, but that's how we get better. We all need help. Even even me who's helping other people needs other people to help me. So that's just the way that it works. Are you ready to get to this? Last week, we discussed some sort of a, a bit of preview and overview about dialogue. And when I first started thinking about this piece that we were going to do, I felt that the biggest issues with it were di- were part of the dialogue. And yes, dialogue is an issue, and we're going to continue with talking about dialogue. But this has sort of taken a small turn because as I was editing it, I realized there were other issues at play as as big as the dialogue issue. And so this is probably going to be one of the most in-depth line edits we've ever done on this show. And we're working with an unusually large piece of material. Normally, we try and keep these down to 500 words to 1,000 max because of how much time it takes to go back and read and reread and everything as we go on. But it felt like this would be a really good opportunity to look at a piece as a whole, not just line editing line by line, but how to look at it from a story perspective. So we're going to be working with a larger amount of material than usual. I think we're running about 1,500 words, give or take. And in order to do that, It does mean repeating. And so I've tried to build this tutorial out in a way that those who are only listening will be able to follow along as well as those who are seeing. It doesn't have any color coding or anything like that. And um, we're going to read the piece first as is. And then I'm going to sort of give an overview of what I feel is missing in this piece from two two main areas of concern that I have for it that I'm going to be working on through the line edits. Then we're going to read it again with actual individual comment by comment, uh, sentence by sentence concerns that I have of what I'm going to try and fix and why. And then after that, we're going to chunk it down with the original and then my rewrites and why I did what I did and, and how each little tweak makes a difference. So we will be going back to the material multiple times. I don't know how far we're going to get in each podcast episode. Like Steve said, we are going to stitch them all together and they will be available as a single video file on Patreon as part of the Hack the Craft uh, program or or tags. Um, So yeah, so the first thing we're going to do, unless Steve interrupts and changes our course, is I'm going to read the original scene and that's going to be our starting place. We good? No interruptions from me. Okay, here we go. Here's the original scene. The door opened into the foyer of an elegantly decorated room and Cassandra Pennington. We all have a type when it comes to the opposite sex. I always, okay, I have to pause here. The main character, point of view character is male, 30-something, single guy, and this is his first 
um, introduction. To, he's meeting this woman. He knows about this woman. He's meeting her for the first time. And I'm going to start over now that we have that sort of little bit of backstory uh, to work with. Okay. The door opened into the foyer of an elegantly decorated room and Cassandra Pennington. We all have a type when it comes to the opposite sex. I always thought mine started with a desire to laugh and an unwillingness to take oneself too seriously. Beyond that, I was partial to different body styles, heights, and hair colors. But what I saw when I stepped out of the elevator must have been what I'd been genetically wired to desire. A woman dressed comfortably in faded jeans and a loose white t-shirt, golden hair piled on top of her head and a face that appeared free of makeup. She was about two inches shorter than my six foot two, and her bare feet sported bright red toenails. A smudge of bright blue paint on her nose completed the picture. You're a Reggie Carpenter, aren't you? She asked, a puzzled look on her face. Oops, I'd apparently been struck dumb at the sight of her. Yes, yes, sorry. Long drive, you must be Cassandra. I am, and you got here more quickly than I'd expected. Than I'd expected. She pointed to the patio. Please, make yourself comfortable outside. Would you like coffee or some iced tea? Tea would be great, I said. Mm. I walked out into a perfect November afternoon where I tried to gather my wits, which had scattered about the foyer when I saw Cassandra. I took a deep breath, inhaled the briny ocean air, and focused on organizing my overstimulated mind. I walked the length of the large patio, which was furnished with expensively upholstered outdoor furniture. A table with six chairs sat on one end, while two comfortable lounge chairs sat on the other. I stepped through the chairs and took a seat at the table. My eyes were pointed to the Atlantic, but what I saw instead was Cassandra, paint on her nose, looking expectantly at me. Could the fates have actually delivered me to the perfect woman after I finished listening to that audiobook? The audiobook is a reference to something that takes place outside the scene, but it does make full and perfect sense in this context. No way. I was in deep trouble here. A few minutes later, she re reappeared with a tray of iced tea and sat it in the middle of the table. The blue paint was gone and the hair atop her head was slightly better organized, so perhaps she wanted to make an impression as well. One could hope. She spoke, Reggie, I assume that's short for Reginald? For my parents, maybe, but not for me. I watched her hands as she poured. Her nails were unpolished and her ring finger was gloriously bare. Why do you say that, she asked. Sorry, automatic reaction. Yes, it's short for Reginald. I'm officially Reginald Randolph Carpenter II, but I prefer Reggie. I see, she said. I've got the same kind of thing going. Professionally, I go by Cassandra because it fits the work I do, but I prefer Cassie. And speaking of professional obligations, you said you had some questions about the work I did for Mrs. Rudd. She stirred sugar into her iced tea while I gathered my thoughts. It wouldn't do to come off as accusatory. I'm actually looking into the baseball card, the Mickey Mantle card in Mr. Rudd's office. Do you remember the card? She looked up from her stirring. Of course. Well, he recently decided to sell it and found that it wasn't as valuable as he'd been led to believe. Yes, Elizabeth told me that when I called to her to confirm that it was okay to speak with you. What questions do you have? I was pleased and a little surprised that she wasn't put off by the reason for my visit. Well, the obvious, I guess, was the card you saw a year ago worth $2.8 million. She pulled out her phone and tapped for several seconds. It was a little over a year ago. My appraisal was for $850,000, she said. She handed me the phone. I looked, and there it was in a long list of items that had been appraised. Mrs. Rudd was right. The card was one of the lesser pieces. I handed the phone back. According to Mr. Rudd, the card in his possession now is worth significantly less than that. She took a sip of her iced tea and tucked a leg underneath herself on the chair. Do you understand what an appraisal is, Reggie? Perhaps not, but I'm willing to learn. 
There was small movement at the left side of her mouth, almost the beginning of a smile, but it disappeared quickly. The terminology in my business can be confusing. When I appraise items for insurance or other purposes, my appraisal assumes the piece being appraised is authentic and as described. She looked down at her phone, swiped the screen a few times before continuing. The card was presented as an original Mickey Mantle rookie card, part of a set distributed by a company called Topps in 1952. It was described as in perfect condition, and I saw nothing to indicate that it was not in perfect condition. She appeared utterly unconcerned while educating me and either didn't feel I was questioning her work or she didn't care. How do you determine the value, I asked. Another swipe of her screen. It's a little like appraising a house. I looked at the last few sales, made some adjustments for inflation in the sports memorabilia market, and came up with a price. The last sale was nearly three years ago, and it was for just under 600000 You said the terminology can be confusing. Is there another term for confirming the value of something? Yes, that's called authentication. And depending on the item, it's a much more expensive operation. I expect that Mr. Rudd's buyer paid for authentication, and that's where the discrepancy turned up. Could they have hired you for authentication rather than appraisal? Yes, but I'd have hired someone else to handle the card. I can authenticate artwork, that's my background, but very few people want or need that level of detail for insurance purposes. Most high-end art transfers happen through a few large auction houses, and they have their own people for that kind of work. I heard the words, but their meaning battled for cycles in my brain, which was more focused on capturing the way her lips moved when she spoke. I flashed back on the last time I'd been this distracted talking to a woman, a girl actually, Pam Martin after eighth grade science. We spent weeks work I'd spent weeks working up the nerve to ask her to the spring dance. I'd actually started to pop the question when I stuttered and froze. I actually stopped talking and stood there looking like a complete dolt, humiliating, especially after your twin sister finds out and spreads it all over the school. I wrestled my wandering thoughts back to the business at hand. How were you hired for this job? She tapped and swiped at her phone for several seconds. Continental Insurance, they hired me for the job. Is that the norm in your world? The insurance company is your client, I asked. She fluttered a hand. Mostly yes. I do occasionally work for individual clients, but I primarily work for insurance companies. There are a few of us around the country who do this, and I'm fortunate to be in Florida where there's plenty of work. Keeps me busy. I looked out at the view from her condo, and it seems to be lucrative. She smiled but didn't respond. If I were an insurance company, I'd want her to stay busy and to deliver every report in person. What kind of supporting information do you provide your clients? She held up her phone. You saw the report I delivered to them. I think the client gets a copy as well, and I provide several photographs of each item on the schedule. Does that mean you took pictures of the Mickey Mantle card while you were there? Of course. Would you like me to send them to you? Do you have copies I could look at? She shook her head, and her eyes flashed amusement. No, I don't keep photographs lying around. My business is mostly digital, but I can email the images to you. They're very high resolution and should answer any questions you may have. I gave her a business card and stood, needing to get out before I said or did something stupid. I thanked her for the tea, and she led me back to the foyer. I do a lot of work in the lawn, she said, with one hand on the elevator button. I'll give you a call next time. Maybe we can do lunch or something. I stammered some type of embarrassing reply and saw a smile that lit her entire face just before the door closed. Smooth, Reggie. Very smooth. All right. Let me jump in here. Okay. I, first off, I mean, you're really good at, at reading this. That was, that was good. Great job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, secondly, I was expecting to be painfully aware of the shortcomings of the story. And there were a couple of instances where I felt like the dialogue was a little bit stilted and it went on too long. But 
overall, I'm pretty happy with it. Okay. So don't be mad at me, all right? I'm not going to be mad. I just, I just want you to know that I expected when you read it that I would, I would just, especially since I've read the, the new version, that I would, I would feel like, oh, and I'd, I'd feel this sense of, of horrible pain, but I didn't. I was actually pretty pleased with that as the version that I gave to you. I, I think you should be. It was a good version. It was really good. And, you know, I, I've been doing this for a while, you know, and I've had a long time to learn from my own mistakes. So, you know, it's just coming at it from a different place. So here are my initial thoughts. So I have two overarching big picture concerns that I want to discuss before we break the scene down segment by segment. And those two concerns are going to be what's driving many of my word choices and editing decisions. So the first issue that I have is that contrary to all intentions, Reggie comes across as a bit shallow and also not very smart or likable. And uh, in times past, when Steve and I have talked about his concerns for the book, him Reggie being likable is a big concern to him. And I have the, the advantage of being able to look at this from a women's point of view, which it can, uh, I don't even want to step on that minefield. We're just going to leave that there for a little bit. Okay, so there's also some character inconsistency that can that's exacerbating some of this unlikableness that I'm picking up on Reggie. So I'm going to work on sharpening him up some. That's going to be my Reggie challenge in, in this. Now, let's bear in mind, dialogue is still in the background here. We haven't let that go yet. So the second is a bit of a bigger deal. And this is more of a story doctor type issue that can be difficult to see without taking a step back and looking at the scene as a whole. And it's not something that can be fixed on a line by line basis. And that's why I wanted to work with such a big chunk of text this time, because it gives us a chance to actually look at the entire scene. And that's where we see story problems. So these story problems are probably not something that readers would notice in terms of grit. But on a more subconscious level, it creates a lack of fulfillment or a lack of richness or this sense that something's not quite right and that, that the scene, as it's currently written, it has no actual point or purpose. So as currently written, this scene exists because there's a little bit of information that needs to be relayed and the story requires that these two characters meet face to face. But that's very nearly the definition of contrived. So I'm going to elaborate on both of those in a little bit and also more in depth in the coming segment by segment breakdown. But before we do that, we need to look at this from a big picture craft perspective. So there are always two reasons for a scene that this that, that a scene is included in, a, in fiction, right? One, the author needs and wants it to happen for the story and the plot to work. That's just, it is, that's, that's what being a writer is. Two, the character's needs and wants and reasons for the scene. So that first reason that the author needs and wants it to happen only counts insofar as you, the author, have decided it must be so. But deciding it must be so is not a legitimate enough reason on its own for a scene or a conversation to take place. Whatever happens on the page must, absolutely must, be something directly related to your character. And so it becomes critical that you, as the author, are able to internalize and understand the scene well enough from your character's perspective that you're able to sell that character's motivation to your audience as the only reason for the scene. You, as the author, need to be invisible. The scene happening for the plot needs to be absolutely invisible. It has to come across that this is the character driving the plot forward. 
So if you haven't fully internalized the character and character motivations, the scene's going to feel forced and contrived because it's going to be missing the key elements that give it its meaning and purpose. And this is going to be less of a challenge for organic writers, because in organic writing, the story tends to flow naturally from character and character choices, and, and the author is sort of learning from the characters. So the author imposing a scene on the story is less common or less of a big deal, I think, or maybe even you don't notice it as much as you do with stories that are plotted out. Because if you're a plotter like me, essentially Everything that happens on the page is there because you, as God of the story, decided it must be so. So the trick to making your involvement invisible is by returning again and again to the character's thoughts, the character's insights, and the character's reasonings. If you, as the author, aren't able to clearly articulate why your character has done and said something in a way that feels wholly authentic to the character and the, and the character choices, that scene doesn't belong. So you basically have two choices at that point. You can either reconfigure your character or reconfigure your plot. Now, sometimes the issue isn't actually a conflict between character and plot requirements, but rather it's a clarity issue. And in these instances, even though the author does understand the scene from the character's perspective, that understanding is never quite making it to the page. And I think that's what we're dealing here with this scene. But anyway, regardless, to hack this issue, as you read and work through your scene drafts, see if you can find the character's reason for the scene or the conversation or the action stated explicitly or implicitly enough to be clear to the reader anywhere on the page. If you can't point to it and underline it, it doesn't exist. Even if it exists in your head, it does not exist because it's not there on the page. And if it doesn't exist, the scene needs to be reworked until it does. And if you can't authentically line up character motivation with a plot or scene directly on the page, the scene doesn't belong. So every chapter opening every time you you cut scene and start somewhere else you need to know why that is taking place not just for you because you need to have it there or you're trying to transition characters from place to place why is the character doing it what does that matter to the story is that driving the story forward is that a choice the character would make and if we don't understand why that scene has no point, it doesn't belong, and to be able to understand why we need to be inside the character's heads, we can't read your character's mind, we need to know what they're thinking. So let's look what all, what all that means in a practical sense by peeling back the layers of the scene we've just read. So here's the backstory to that scene. Up until this point in the story, all we know is that a valuable baseball card has turned out to be fake, and this woman, Cassandra Pennington was the one who did an appraisal on it a bit over a year ago. There was a bit of introduction to who the main character is and those in his orbit in terms of family, clients, and client household staff, and that is all we have. Plot-wise, we've, we've transitioned directly from Reggie learning about the card being a fake to being told about the appraisal to setting up a point, an appointment to meet with the appraiser and then to drive to Miami and during that drive, Reggie reflects a bit on his life and his history with women, but not at all on the case or the card itself. So if he's had any thoughts at all on the appraisal 
or the person who did the appraising, we're not privy to them, nor are we privy to what questions he once answered or why he's made this 90-minute drive or what he hopes to gain from a face-to-face meeting that he can't accomplish over the phone. So he just made a 90-minute drive across the Florida Peninsula to meet with this woman. In what we read, did we learn anything that made that drive worth his time? Right now, my answer to that is no. So the first time I went over this scene, it was dialogue that jumped out at me as problematic, and it felt stilted and forced and somewhat detached from the story. And yes, the dialogue and character interaction in this scene does need to be quote-unquote humanized a bit to feel a little more organic, but the underlying issue with the dialogue is the same as the underlying issue with the entire scene. It serves no purpose. There's no point to anything that they're talking about. Well, there's some, but to, to a lot of it, there's just no point. So... So as a reminder, in dialogue, in fiction, dialogue in fiction has two purposes. This is what we talked about the last show. One, dialogue needs to establish and reveal character. And two, dialogue needs to inform the reader, add new information, or drive the plot forward. And your goal as an author is to get as much of your dialogue to serve both purposes at the same time. But in this scene, most of the dialogue does neither. So for this scene to have a purpose, we need insight into what Reggie is doing and why, what he hopes to accomplish or what he needs or wants. But as the characters interact, instead of answering those questions or moving the story forward, Reggie's asking redundant questions that seem to exist for no purpose than to lead to what the reader needs to be quote unquote told. But what we're told ends up repeating old information and providing very little that's new. And when we do get something new, Reggie's inner dialogue and reflection skip right over it in favor of focusing on or reacting to the woman herself. And so this becomes a scene in which the card, which is the thing that brought him to Miami in the first place, seems almost an afterthought to his obsession with and objectification of the woman he's come to meet. Now, don't get me wrong. Reggie being befuddled and overwhelmed by Cassie is not the issue of the scene. If we'd been privy to his thoughts on Cassie as the appraiser or on the card or on what he'd hoped to accomplish with this meeting prior to those elevator doors opening, we might actually be okay fully focusing the scene on him him being enamored with her. But because we don't get any of that prior, it's up to this scene to carry that weight and the character interplay and the dialogue is the primary mechanism to carry it. But unfortunately, the dialogue offers very little beyond filler and formality and so, as a result, Reggie comes across as a bit vac- as an vacuous adolescent rather than a capable, intelligent adult that he is. And the reader comes away from the scene a little bit confused about what we just read. And all of this is fixable. And it's not incredibly difficult to fix either, so long as we don't lose sight of what this scene op- ultimately needs to accomplish, which is, one, we're establishing Reggie's purpose for this face-to-face, two, we're introducing Cassie as a character because Cassie does play a role. That's not a one-time meeting of this, this character. She plays a role throughout the book. We're going to further develop Reggie as a character because until now we've only seen him in one other scene. We're going to introduce the character dynamics between Reggie and Cassie, and we're going to lay the groundwork for Reggie being suspicious of Cassie as a potential suspect. 
And we need to introduce the reader and Reggie to the world of art memorabilia fraud. So now we're going to go back and look at this entire scene sentence by sentence to see what issues we're facing on a sentence by sentence basis. And after that, we'll go back in smaller segments and look at how to solve the issues by building what off what already exists. But for this podcast episode, that's as far as we can get. So next week is when we're going to start looking at this as a line by line. So that's it for this week. We'll be back in your ear next Tuesday. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's show. Uh, We will have a video up for the entire series shortly, not tomorrow, not Tuesday. We're recording this on Monday. So it'll be a couple of days before we get that video up. But the entire thing will be available on video on Taylor's Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash taylorstevens. And for podcast listeners, we will be back again each Tuesday until we fight through to the end of this.